If you're an 80s or a 90s kid like me, then you remember the TV show Reading Rainbow, which used to come on PBS. And uh, this is pretty blurry, but that's about how it looked on the old analog TVs, didn't it? Kids these days with their high-definition TVs, they don't know what it was like back in the day. You had to squint to sort of see it clearly. Reading Rainbow. This was a show all about teaching kids and encouraging young people to read. Uh, And there was always a portion of the show where kids, who are now in their 30s, 40s, maybe even 50s, would get on there and they would make book recommendations. They would say things, well, I think I've got a little girl up here on the next slide. There she is. They would say things like, well, this girl might say, if you love fairies and you love ponies, then have I got a book for you. You're going to love fairy ponies. And then it would go to the next kid. You remember the show? You remember the theme song? Butterfly in the sky. I can fly twice as high. Take a look. It's in a book. It's reading rainbow. Very good, church. Nice job. You remember it. I know you wish that I would go on, but we have a sermon to get to, okay? So I got to quit. Reading rainbow. This morning, a childhood dream of mine comes true. This is going to be my reading rainbow moment. Are you ready? I'm going to do what I always wanted to do as a kid. I'm going to be like one of the kids on Reading Rainbow. I want to make a reading recommendation to you. And here it goes. If you love to hear about hellfire and brimstone and damnation, if you wish that every sermon were like the Jonathan Edwards classic, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, then have I got a passage for you. And it's in Romans chapter 2. Why don't you take a Bible and turn with me to Romans chapter 2. I bet you've never heard a sermon introduction quite like that one. (laughs) I'm not so sure about this segue. Romans chapter 2. This is where we will camp out for the morning. And we're going to look at several several verses in this chapter. But I want to start with verses 8 and 9 of this chapter of this letter of the Apostle Paul to the church located at Rome, he says in these verses, those who are self-seeking, those who do not obey the truth, but instead obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury, there will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, and we'll get to the rest in a moment. What do you think about these verses? You know, some people are uncomfortable when it comes to talking about, or when they hear a lesson or a sermon about, the judgment and the wrath of God. And some people say, shh, don't talk about that too much. Or be careful how you talk about that. Or don't talk about it on a holiday weekend when there are going to be so many visitors in the house. Joseph, what are you doing preaching a sermon about wrath and judgment and hell when we've got so many guests in the house? You're going to turn people off? You're going to turn people away? Well, I'm not so sure. I think, on the whole, we want to hear about a God who will ultimately punish evil. Don't we? We want to hear about a God who will, at the end times, make things right. 
We want to hear about a God who is a just judge and who will, on the last day, bring about ultimate justice. We want, as Amos wanted in the Old Testament, for justice to roll down like a river, for righteousness to flow like an ever-flowing stream. We are not uncomfortable, and in fact, we appreciate the fact that God is committed to justice. Especially when you look around and you consider the state of affairs in our world today. And our world has been a broken place. I I never want to get into the habit too much of talking about, oh, how bad things are today. It's always been bad since sin came into the world. But I do want to share some examples that I see in our culture today. You know, after Georgia's recent fetal heartbeat bill, which made which banned abortion after a fetal heartbeat could be detected, actress Jamila Jamil from NBC's The Good Place tweeted this, I had an abortion when I was young, and it was the best decision I ever made, both for me and for the baby I didn't want and I wasn't ready for emotionally, psychologically, and financially. You know, there are a lot of women in our culture today who have had abortions and who deeply, probably out of fear, and who deeply regret that decision. And I want to say unequivocally that there is abundant forgiveness and grace at the foot of the cross. And we should minister to young women who are post-abortive and who for whatever reason decided to do that, but now greatly regret their decision. But this lady, this actress, not only not regrets having an abortion, taking the life of an unborn child, she says it was the best thing that I ever did. And in her tweet, she doesn't try to say that it was just you know, a clump of tissues, that it was just a fetus. No, she calls her child a baby. She says it was the best thing that she ever did. Such attitudes stand under the judgment of God, the wrath of God. I know of a preacher who served the same congregation for nearly three decades before retiring. And it wasn't until after his retirement that his grown son discovered he had been abusing children and young people in his congregation throughout most of his ministry. Such behavior stands under the judgment, the wrath of God. In our country from 1877 to 1950 or so, over 4,000 African Americans in this country were lynched. A majority of them in the South, their lives taken in extremely brutal, violent ways, without a fair trial, which is afforded to all citizens in our country. In many cases for crimes that they were only purported to have committed. They were killed, many of them, because of the demonic belief that the color of their skin made them inferior, even less than human. Such beliefs, such actions stand under the judgment, the wrath of God. The trial for Emmanuel Sampson, the man who opened fire at the Burnett Chapel Church of Christ just a couple years ago in Antioch, Tennessee. You remember the story. You remember the morning. That trial is currently underway. And just the other day, jurors were able to listen to some of the phone conversations that Mr. Sampson and his girlfriend had in which they mocked the victims of that shooting. Sampson asked his girlfriend if he looked good in the footage 
of that shooting, if he looked strong and stout in the video footage of him terrorizing that church family on a Sunday morning much like this one, such evil stands under the judgment, the wrath of God. You know, Paul starts talking about God's wrath much earlier than chapter 2. So I want to take you back to chapter 1, where this discussion begins. Keep your place in chapter 2. Let's go back to chapter 1, starting about verse 18, where Paul says, in beginning this long, lengthy section on the wrath, the judgment of God, he says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And then Paul goes on what we might call a diatribe on the sinful condition of the world. Not a whole lot unlike what I just shared about the sinful, immoral condition of our world today. Including in verses 29 through 31, a description of unrighteous, ungodly attitudes and behaviors. And then to sort of close this, this section out in verse 32, he says, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. They're not only involved in these types of immoral, ungodly behaviors, they give their stamp of approval to others who are doing the very same thing. And I imagine this letter that Paul writes to this congregation in the city of Rome, I imagine it being read aloud. And, I can, and, and of course, as was the case with most of the early churches that were established by Paul and other Christian leaders, it was comprised of both Gentile believers and Jewish believers. And I can almost hear the Jewish Christians in the house in Rome giving a hearty amen as Paul really goes after all those worldly people, all those sinful people, I can hear the Jews, the Jewish Christians, who were part of God's covenant people in the Old Testament, who were supposed to have been called out from the world and its practices, who had committed themselves to a certain moral and ethical framework, as Paul went after all those worldly, ungodly, immoral people out in the world. I can hear him saying, Amen. You go get them, Paul. You sick them. You tell them the truth about what they've been doing. But then, in chapter 2, Paul just pulls the rug right out from under them. He turns the tables on them. And many believe in chapter 2, verse 1, he begins to address not the condition of ungodliness in the world and not what everybody out there is doing. He begins to talk specifically to Jewish Christians. And I want you to keep this in mind as we read starting in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. I've got verses 3 and 4 up here on the screen. Paul says, Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things, as Paul has clearly laid out in the previous chapter. But verse 3, he says, But do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you'll escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing 
that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. You see, the Jewish Christians thought that their covenant relationship with God, that their history as God's special called out people would shield them from His judgment, would prevent Him from judging them on the last day. And boy, were they wrong. I mean, Paul even gets into their head here in verse 4. Because we can imagine them saying, maybe things like, you know, as we look back at the history of our people, and you know this having read the Old Testament, many of you, we are in the midst of this reading plan. You've been reading and you've seen how kind and how patient God has been with His people, with the Israelites in the Old Testament. And maybe you've got Jewish believers in Rome who have said, think about how God has been so kind to our people. So patient. We are, we are shielded. We are insulated from all this judgment talk that Paul has been sharing. Because historically, we are God's people. We're the Jews. We're the children of Abraham and, and, and Judah and Moses and David and all the great leaders of Israel. Paul's talking about somebody else. He's talking about a different group than us. And Paul here says, listen, you may not be doing what they're doing. You may not be involved in idolatry. You may not be involved in homosexuality, which Paul talks about in chapter 1. He talks about women giving up natural relation, relations with men in order to pursue relationships with other women, and the same for men. Uh, and he forbids that, condemns that. You, may, you may, may not be involved in homosexual activity. You may not be involved in all manner of evil. But what you're doing is just as displeasing to God. You are judging them and yet you are also involved in sinful activities yourself. And if we go back through the list here, my goodness, you've got some of the quote-unquote big sins mixed in with things like, well, covetousness, malice, or anger, envy. Anybody struggle with envy? With jealousy? What about those who are boastful? How about this? Disobedient to parents? Kids? You see that one in there? My kids? Y'all see that? Disobedient to parents? That's in the list. Foolish, faithless, heartless. My goodness. When I read this list, I, I am implicated. You know, I see myself there. And what Paul is saying to all these Jewish Christians who are giving him a hearty amen as he goes after the Greeks, the Gentiles, the outsiders is, you will not escape the judgment of God. You do not get a pass because of who you are, because of what group of people you belong to, because of your history. All will stand before the judgment seat of God on the last day. I mean, listen to the last part of verse 9. He says, there will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. I read that earlier, but I left off the last part. Paul here says, to the Jew first. If anything, you will get the first helping of the judgment. You will surely not escape. So you better stop talking about them and what they deserve and stop judging them. You need to look at yourself. 
You see, we love to talk about them. And we love to reflect on God's judgment and His wrath that we expect to be poured out on them. And I do that. In my interpersonal conversations with you, we talk about the sorry state of the, of the world and the immorality and the ungodliness that we see going on out in the world. And I do that in classes and I do that in sermons. I've already done that this morning in my diatribe earlier of all the recent examples of, of unrighteousness that we see around us. We love to talk about them. But here's the danger. When we focus on them all the time exclusively, that is a very effective way of avoiding the ugliness of our own hearts. It's a very effective way of neglecting the self-examination that we need to be involved in day in and day out. You see, because if we can put the spotlight on them, if we can get everybody looking at them and how bad they are and all the terrible things going on, then people won't see what's going on inside of our hearts. And they won't see what's happening in our private lives. So let's keep talking about all the ungodly people out there because that is a really effective tool of taking the spotlight off ourselves and preventing us from examining ourselves. We try to run from God, don't we? We focus on them so we don't have to fess up and we don't have to face the ugliness and the temptation and the sin inside of our heart. But what Paul has already said in Romans chapter 2 is there is no running. There is no escape. Nobody gets a pass. You think you're off the hook when it comes to the judgment day? You think you're off the hook when it comes to God metting out His justice and His judgment? You, do you think you can escape God's judgment just because your family has always been a member of the church? Or this church, this congregation in particular? Do you think you get a pass just because you come here regularly? Because you're involved to some degree in what goes on here and the work here, the ministry? Do you think you get a pass because you're a relatively good person? Because you're not as bad as them? What Paul says quite clearly in Romans chapter 2, if you think any of these things, you are wrong. Everybody has to stand before the judgment seat of Christ on the last day. And if you have a hard, impenitent heart, if you are filled with judgment towards them, but you haven't examined the state of your own heart, then the judgment will not go well for you. You are not off the hook. I think a sign of spiritual maturity is this. A deep awareness that your sin is the worst sin. If as you are growing and maturing as a Christian, their sin seems worse than yours, the, the weight, the gravity, the seriousness, the severity of your sin is lessening and theirs is growing, then you're headed in the wrong direction. But if as you mature and develop as a Christian and you sense the the seriousness and the severity of your sin, that is increasing in you. And I'm not saying it's making you feel like a, a sorry rascal all the time because if you're a baptized believer, you're forgiven of that. But as you understand the gravity and the seriousness of your sin, your gratitude for the grace of God grows even more. That is the direction in which we should be moving. 
A sign of spiritual maturity is recognizing, is a deep and increasing awareness that my sin, not anybody else's, my sin is the worst sin. I've got what Paul here, what Paul has to say uh, up here from 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. Paul says, here, I want to share with you a trustworthy saying. It's deserving of full acceptance, and here it is in its entirety. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and you know what? I am the foremost. I'm the chief. Now, we know Paul had a checkered past, and we know that in his former life, he fiercely persecuted the church, but you can make the argument that nobody did more than Paul to advance the name of Christ, to preach the gospel to all the world. Nobody did more than Paul in declaring the riches of God's grace through Jesus Christ. And yet Paul here says to Timothy, his, his protege, his son in the faith, hey, I'm going to tell you something. Christ Jesus came to save sinners, and you know what? I am tops. I'm at the top of the totem pole. I'm chief. I'm foremost. That's spiritual maturity right there. And this reality, the, the reality that all of us must stand at the judgment, the reality that nobody is off the hook, that our sin is as bad as anyone else's, this doesn't change our commitment to helping people caught in sin get out of it. We must continue to do that. That is part of our job as Christians. But reflecting on these matters from Romans chapter 2, it does change our approach. I've also got up here what Paul says in the book of Galatians, chapter 6, verse 1. He says, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him. Go out and get him. Confront him or her with their rebellion, with their sin. Beg them to come back. You are doing a great work if you do this, but what else does Paul say? Do it with gentleness. And one more thing. Keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. Keep a close watch on yourself. We do so, we go out, we help to bring people back into the fold, restore people with the knowledge that we are as susceptible to sin as anyone else. We do so knowing that regular log removal from our eye is required. Jesus says, why are you so concerned about the speck in someone else's eye when you've got a plank, a two-by-four, coming out of yours? We help people be restored to God by waking up every morning and asking God to remove the log in our eye. Repenting of whatever rebellious attitude, behavior that we have been involved in. We do so humbly, understanding who we are, understanding where we've come from, understanding the great, the great grace of God that's been poured out into our lives. And all of this, it doesn't change our willingness to take a stand against sin. We cannot get soft on sin. We ought to stand firmly against any type of immorality or rebellion that we see. We should speak with moral clarity no matter who it is or where it's com coming from. We should speak where the Bible speaks. We should say what God has to say about what is the moral standard for our lives. But it does change our attitude when we do this. We speak out against sin keeping a close watch on our own hearts. We remember what Paul has to say in Romans chapter 2, verse 5. He says, because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Keep speaking out against sin. 
Keep trying to rescue people from the clutches of the devil. But don't forget about your own heart. Examine the state of your own heart. Make sure your heart is not hard and cold and unwilling to repent. You see, I'm concerned about the state of our hearts. I'm concerned about the state of my heart. And a doctor might say to you, you need to go in for regular checks on your heart. You need to make sure that heart is is ticking and beating, pumping blood, because if it ever stops, you're done. Check on your heart. Well, today I'm going to be your spiritual doctor, okay? And I'm going to say to you, and I'm saying it to me, anytime I point one finger at you, I'm pointing three back at me. That's how it works. Check on the state of your heart regularly. Do this, do this, church. Do this, Christians. Sin is like a runaway train. Temptation. And sometimes we hop on board and we are miles down the tracks before we realize where we have gone. But if we can become more adept, more in tune with the state of our hearts, then we can identify temptation before it takes us too far down the tracks. We can recognize when envious thoughts might be leading us in a direction where we don't want to go. If we are in tune, if we are examining constantly the state of our... If we are doing regularly, regular heart checks, then we can say, you know what, I'm not going to... I'm not going to give that lustful thought a foothold in my heart or in my mind. Because I know where this is headed. And I don't want to go there. I'm not going to give this greedy, this covetous, this angry, this evil thought any more headspace, any more heart space. I'm going to stop it in its tracks before I, I catch that train and, and head much too far in that direction. Do you check on the state of your heart regularly? What we need to do is check on the state of our hearts. We need to say, listen, I don't like where my heart is headed, O Lord. I repent. Help me. Purify my heart. Let my heart be soft and tender and malleable and and penitent. I don't ever want to develop. And this is a risk for older Christians. I really believe this. When we're young, our hearts are softer. They're more malleable. They're more open to the Word of God. We can easily, as we get older, develop hard, cold, impenitent hearts. Don't let it happen. Beg your God that you don't let, that He doesn't let your heart get like that. Keep your heart soft and open to His Word and willing to say, Oh God, I am sorry. I confess my sin to you. I repent. Now the last few verses that we're going to look at in verses 6-11, through 11, I don't want to get too technical here, but They form what's called a chiasm. Have you heard of a chiasm? (laughs) Those of you who are part of our teaching rocket workshop, you're familiar with this. This was a popular way of arranging material in the ancient world in order to reveal meaning. And it's called a chiasm because it is shaped like the left side of the Greek letter key, which is like an X. And so in this, in chiasms, the C's correspond as do the B's and A's. Do you see how... The C's here are the same sort of thought. 
But for those who are self-seeking and don't obey the truth, but unrighteousness, wrath, and fury, I've sort of shortened it to get it all on one slide. That's much like the next C. Tribulation and distress for evildoers, both Jews and Greeks. Those two thoughts are similar. The B's correspond too. Do you see that? Those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory, honor, and immortality, He'll give eternal life. Glory, honor, and peace for all who do good. And then do you see how the A's are similar, how they correspond? When Paul says, God will render to each one according to his works, and God shows no partiality. Now, when you see a chiasm in Scripture, and there are many of these, most often, the point comes in the center. So the main point of this whole section would be with the C's. But this is different. In this case, the main point comes at the extremes where we see that God will render to each one according to His work, that God shows no favoritism, no partiality. And I find great comfort and great assurance that no matter what happens on the day of judgment, God will get it right. God will be absolutely fair. There will be no miscarriage of justice as is often the case in our courts, in our country, and in our world. I am thankful that He is the judge and I am not. Aren't you? Because He is able to do that and I cannot do that. I do not have the ability, the mind to be able to do that. On that day, He will show no favoritism, no partiality, and He will render to each one according to how they have responded to the Gospel of Jesus Christ. If you have received salvation by grace through faith, and I don't want you to think this sermon is about salvation through, through meritorious deeds or works. We're talking about lifestyles here that are either built on the accepting of Jesus Christ and the salvation that comes with that or the rejection thereof. So if you have received salvation by grace through faith in Jesus and you've embraced a faithful lifestyle, then eternal life and glory and honor and peace will be yours. But as we've been saying, if you reject God's grace, if your heart remains hard, then wrath and fury and tribulation and distress are in store for you. We've talked about them. We talk about them enough. We ought to talk about us more. So let's end by talking about us. Let's talk about our attitudes. Let's talk about our behaviors. Let's talk about our hearts and let's make certain that our hearts are not hard and cold and impenitent. Let's make for certain that they are soft, that they are open to God's will, that they are willing to repent. Today you have an opportunity to surrender all to Jesus Christ, including and especially your heart. Why don't you do that today? Why don't you come if you haven't? Why don't you come to be baptized into Jesus Christ? Or if you're struggling in any other way, why don't you come share that with us so that we can be praying for you. If you have any spiritual needs, we sing this song on your behalf for your benefit. Why don't you come right now as we sing it? I will never love and trust him in his presence daily live. Oh.